turn together this morning to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. This morning we will look at the first eight verses. Genesis 6, beginning at verse 1. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord has complete authority over our lives. Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we pray, O Lord, this morning that you would teach us from your word, that you would not only teach us what we are to know, but that you would teach us who we are, and that you would teach us what we must do. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is an interesting text, isn't it? It has been called by many commentators one of the most, if not the most, difficult passage in the Bible. There are a series of interpretations around it that we will look into, but this is one of the classic texts that modern man looks at and says, well, this Bible's obviously made up. This is a story. It's a myth. You can't understand what's going on here. What does this mean? What are these Nephilim? Who are these giants? What about the sons of men and the daughters, or the sons of God and the daughters of men? And so, they interpret it as, this is an opportunity for the Israelites to take made-up stories from people around them, put their own kind of Jewish twist on it, and put it in a book so we can all be fascinated. Now, is that how we should view the Bible? 
Every time we come across something that is not very easy at first glance to interpret, should we just say, well, I don't understand it, so it must be made up. You see, there's a very dangerous principle there because it goes from wondering who the Nephilim is to how does the sun stand still? To how does it see part? To how does a man rise from the dead? You see, we must look at this text, like every other text in the Bible, as the very word of God that is true. We may need to do some work in figuring out what it means, but we have to take it as truth. And one of the best ways to understand something that is difficult is to go back to the basics. Go back to the things that you know that are true that are easy to understand, that are throughout the Bible. And so this morning, we're going to look at that. Because you see, at its core, this text is not a text about who the giants are, or who is marrying whom. At its core, this text is about sin, judgment, and grace. That's what it's about. We'll see first that God perceives our sin. There is no place that we can go, but that the Lord will see what we have done in violation of His law. God perceives our sin, and because He perceives our sin, God then plans His judgment. He sees our sin, then He plans our judgment. It is a great mercy that this paragraph ends not with verse 7, but with verse 8. Because we see finally, too, that in the midst of planning His judgment, God provides His grace. Sin, judgment, and grace. Well, let's look. Let's begin then by looking how God perceives our sin. The first thing that we see from this text is that sin grows. One of the great lies of the evil one is that you can keep your sin small, limited in scope, limited in duration. You know, it is amazing that we have come to a place in our society where we fully agree and wholeheartedly say amen When we say there is no way that someone can control their use and abuse of drugs. There is no way that someone can control their use and abuse of alcohol. We've even come to the point where we say you cannot control your use and abuse of food. But sin? Oh, that I can control. I can stop sinning any time I want. How foolish is that? Our text shows us. Because you see, in the very first words here we see of chapter 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land. This tells us that this goes in connection with what we have been studying in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. This is contemporaneous with Genesis 4 and 5. The people, the children of Adam and Eve, are multiplying throughout the earth. There is a line of Cain, and there is a line of Seth, and they are multiplying and growing in the world. But the interesting thing is, they don't grow equally. 
You remember in chapter 4, we looked at the line of Cain. And we went from father to son to father to son. And then we looked at chapter 5 at the line of Seth, the godly line. And we went from father to son to father to son. And we might get the impression that the world was split 50-50 between those who followed the Lord and those who didn't. But chapter 6 comes up and hits us right in the face with a wet washcloth. Wake up. Because you see, there is great multiplying of people. There is a godly line. But they're not multiplying like sin is. We're going to get to a point, we'll look next week, where sin has multiplied so much that that godly line is down to eight persons. Eight persons versus a billion. Sin has that way of growing and flourishing when it is not cut out. You know, we might think that sin would be under check in these circumstances. It's about as good as it gets. God is speaking directly to the church. He speaks to Adam. He speaks to Enoch. He speaks to Noah. You see, that is another foolishness we have about ourselves. If only we had more than this Bible. If only God would whisper to us as we're sleeping, then we could conquer sin, then we'd follow the Lord, then we would know His will. Genesis 6 tells us that's not the case. God is there speaking, and the problem is not that man cannot hear God. The problem is not that man doesn't have an environment in which godliness is nurtured. Adam is nearly alive at this time. The problem is us. It's not what we know. It's not our environment. The problem is in here, in our hearts. Genesis 6 shows this. Sin grows and festers within us. But you see, sin doesn't only grow in us, it also isolates us, and especially it isolates us from God. And that's where we get into our our tricky text here this morning. Do you see here that as man began to multiply, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. So the question then is, who are these sons of God? Who are these daughters of men? Well, the first theory that is propounded very often is that it's it's a mythology. This is like Zeus or Poseidon. It's the ancient equivalent of the movie, The Wrath of the Titans. It's an interesting story that thrills young people. There's only one problem with that. That's not what the Bible is about. The Bible's not an entertainment text. The Bible claims to be the true word of God. And as a matter of fact, in this story, the man named Noah, Jesus Christ himself said, he was a real man. And the people that lived then were real people. Just like you and just like me. Just like we get married, they got married. Just like we eat, they ate. So we can't get away that easy. It's not a myth. Well, another theory that has been around for many, many years is that the sons of God are fallen angels. That somehow angels 
fell from heaven in the great fall with Satan. And as they shook themselves awake, they looked and they saw human ladies. And they said to themselves, I'm going to get me a wife. And they went and they grabbed the human ladies and they had these kind of angel-human marriages. But this also has its own problems. There is some grammatical use for this. The sons of God are used as a term to refer to angels in Job. But the problem is, have we seen any angels yet in all of the book of Genesis? No. This would be the first place they'd be introduced. And if they were introduced, why introduce them in such a cryptic way? Why make it so that it's actually hard to understand who they are? And then there's the final matter. This mixed marriage cuts against what Jesus says about angels and marrying. Do you remember that? In Luke chapter 20, Jesus says that in glory we will be what? Like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. And nowhere in all of the scripture do we see angels begetting other angels. There's no angel nurseries. There's no angel swings. There's no angel crawling. There's no children of angels. And yet here it's very clear that the sons of God marry the daughters of men and they begin to have children. So if it's not fallen angels, what then could it be? Well, others more recently have said that this could be an introduction or the flourishment of polygamy. That these are kings from the line of Cain who go and they start their own harem. This is the the origin of the harem. And they grab daughters of men and they bring them into their harem and they marry two, three, five, ten, fifteen women. And that's what God is talking about here. But there's a problem with this too. There's no history at all behind it. Nowhere as anyone from the line of Cain called a king. Nowhere do we see anywhere here any evidence of that kind of kingly polygamy in the Bible. And so again, why would the Bible say this so cryptically, so difficult to understand? You know, it is of a truth that when you are having difficulty interpreting the Bible, you take... The easiest, most understandable interpretation. You don't go to flights of fancy. And so I don't think this is fallen angels. And I don't think it's polygamy. Because I think God is saying something else in the bigger structure of this section. What he's talking about here are sons of God. Sons of God are sometimes used as a term to refer to angels, but Where often do we see son of God? Who are called sons in the scripture? It's people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? They're called the children of God. We have a whole doctrine of adoption around this. Sons and daughters of the living God. And so, remember we said this is a continuation of what was going on in the other chapters. It's in the context 
of this unfolding of Genesis 3.15. Turn back with me there if you would. Where God says, I will put enmity between you, that is the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And we saw that in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. The offspring of the seed of the serpent. The offspring of the seed of the woman. And so it's logical that what we're seeing here is the offspring of the seed of the woman. A son of God. The godly people in line of Seth. Now, there's another thing that helps us to understand this because if it's one thing that the Bible is full of, it is warnings against intermarriage between believers and unbelievers. If I were to say, do not be unequally, about 98% of us would respond, yoked. It's a very well-known verse that refers to the forbidding of intermarriage of those who follow the Lord and those who don't. And we see it founded in this book of Genesis and in the Pentateuch. There are many warnings about this. We also see in verse 3 that the Lord responds to this marriage. And the word for the Lord is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The great covenant name of God. So I think what we are seeing here is the godly line of Seth being transformed, seduced, tempted to do what they know is wrong because of what they see. You see, the physical attraction here is what drives them. And isn't that one of the main drivers of sin in your life? Now, you may say, well, pastor... I'm very careful about looking at young ladies. Or I'm very careful about looking at young men. I don't just see things and run off. Really. So you don't feel any pinge of covetousness when you see an iPad. Ever. You don't watch a car drive down the highway and think, Ooh, I wish I had that. I wonder what I could do at work. To get that. You don't sit in your office and wonder if you just shaved those reports just a little bit, you might get the corner office and a little bit more respect. You see, sin sneaks in at us this way. This is an attack on the people of God by Satan. This kind of intermarriage, it seems so natural, so easy. I see an attractive young lady, and I want to make her my wife. Now, you remember, I had some sharp words for the young ladies a few weeks ago when we talked about what we should think about, who we should look for in terms of spouses. Well, here, young men, perk up your ears. Because... If you are interested in looking for a young lady because of what she wears on her ears and around her neck, or what brand of perfume she buys, or what the shade of lipstick is, or how short or how tight her dress is, then do not be surprised if you will find yourself floating farther and farther away from God. 
You see, God has one command here. It is not about how old you should marry. It is not about how young you should marry. It is not about where you should marry. It is about marrying in the Lord. And when they don't, there's a disaster. We see this all the time, don't we? Solomon wrecked the entire kingdom. Our nation has come to a place where we watch celebrities come out and be married and they're on the cover of every magazine. And next week, their divorce papers are on the cover of every magazine. Because we don't view marriage as something about character, as something about commitment, as something that expresses our view of the Lord. There's a danger here. Because you see, sin grabs us. It grabs us through attraction. It grabs us through the things that we like. Satan had tried a direct assault on the line of God. He had murdered Abel through Cain. And he didn't get his way. And so now he tries a sneak attack through marriage. God sees this. He perceives our sin. And then as a result, he plans his judgment. And the first thing that we see is that God's judgment is real. It is not superficial. God does not make excuses or mistakes. He doesn't say, well, you know, I guess I could judge the sons of men, but I could judge this sin, but, you know, we all need a little bit of ability to make some mistakes. I'll just look away for a while. No. God looked down and he saw in verse 5. He looked down and he saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. What a contrast. Just a few chapters ago in chapter 1, verse 31, God looked down and he saw that everything was what? Very good. And now just a few chapters later, just a few generations down... He looks and he sees that wickedness is rampant and horrible. He sees not just actions that are criminal. He sees actions that are immoral. He sees actions that are sinful to the core. Sin of the heart, of the mind, and of the hand. This is the same kind of sin that caused the whole mess in the first place. Look with me here. At verse 2, the sons of God saw, and what they saw was attractive, and what they saw was attractive, they did what? They took. Does that sound familiar? Turn back with me to Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at verse 5, or excuse me, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she did what? She took it. You see, that is how sin works. We see, we are enticed, and we do. We're not that different from the people in Genesis 6. Let's not fool ourselves that we are more sophisticated 
It's the same kind of problem. It's a problem that comes from the heart. The bad news is you are just like the people who were buried under the waters of the flood. So am I. Our hearts are the same. We're not more sophisticated. We're not more cosmopolitan. We're not more civilized. We are just like them at the core of our being. And you see, this is what Satan wants. He wants to nourish this in us. He wants us to be judged. He wants us to rebel against God. And so he continues going after the seed of the woman. God's judgment here is real. And the second thing we need to understand is that God's judgment is just. The people in Genesis 6 deserve what they have coming to them. So do you. And so do I. You see, their sin is everywhere. It is internal in their heart. It is external in the world. The society is completely breaking down. Does it sound familiar? It's the way our world is today. Their wickedness is described In vivid terms. Look with me here at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. If you don't believe in total depravity, your Bible doesn't have that verse in it. Think of how sin and wickedness is described here. It is an intense wickedness. It is great. It is a total wickedness. Every single intention. Not some. Not a majority. Not a good plurality. But every intention. It is intense. It is total. It is inward. It is something that is in their hearts God judges the very intentions of the heart. It is exclusively evil. Look at this. Every intention, every single thought that they have is only evil. No good, ever. Just evil. And how often is it? All the time. Continually. That's how God describes sin. He gives us one other brief description in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, where he recounts the state of man. And he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So not only is man intensely and totally and inwardly and exclusively and constantly evil, he is so naturally now. It is innate. It is from very youth. What that tells us, parents, is your children need Jesus. They don't get a pass when they're young. Sin isn't cute in a six-year-old. Selfishness and greed is not fun in an eight-year-old. It is, there is not an opportunity for a 12 or 14-year-old to get things out of their system. 
No, sin wraps around the core of our being, and unless we root it out with the blood of Jesus Christ, it will kill us. God's judgment is just. God's judgment is also needed. We see that in this very interesting phrase here, in verse 6 and verse 7. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out the man that I have created, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, some of your translations, some of you even have the same translation, and it changes in certain editions, will say God is sorry, or God regretted, or God relented, or God repented. And we look at this and we say, wait a minute. Did God make a mistake when he created the world? Is God saying here that he never should have created the world, that it was a big mistake, and he's got to get a do-over? You know what a do-over is, don't you? Anyone that's ever played any form of baseball, not in a baseball park, knows what a do-over is. You hit the ball, and it hits a branch. And you can't catch it because it hit the branch, but it's not fair that you couldn't catch it because it hit the branch. And everybody yells, do-over! And you act like it never happened. Is that what God's saying here? He should act like it never happened that he created the world, and it never happened that the fall happened, and it never happened that sin has its grip on humanity. No, that's that's not what God is saying here. And again, we have to get back to basics. Just like as we looked at the sons of God, we have to remember that the Bible is full of very clear teaching that God does not change. It's in the Old Testament, in Malachi. It's in the New Testament, in James. It's in Jesus' words. It's in the Pentateuch. It's in the Psalms. It's in the Proverbs. It's in the Prophets. Everywhere we see that one of the great comforts and blessings we have is that God doesn't change. You always know what to expect from Him. His law is always the same. His love is always constant. His plan is always true. He does not change His mind in the middle. And you see, this word here that is sometimes translated repented, sometimes relented, sometimes sorry, sometimes grieved, it's translated this way because it has a whole variety of meanings. And what it basically means is, You are very upset that something is going on. This is describing for us that God has emotions. Now, that may strike you as odd. You may think of God as some kind of great philosopher God who's very passive and doesn't think and doesn't get upset because we think emotions are bad, but that is not the truth. God's has, God has emotions, but they are always the same. They are always good. When God gets angry at something, it's because he should be angry. When God is sad about something, it's because it's something worth being sad about. When God loves, it is because he actively loves the object of his affection. And here God if you'll forgive the turn of phrase, is miserable and sick about what man and sin has done to his creation. you felt that way, haven't you? You're just miserable about what happened. You can't sleep. You toss. You turn. You, your stomach is upset. 
You can't eat. You can't work. You walk around. You are just visibly, emotionally gripped by it. Now, the difference between us and God is that we can't do anything about this. We are the victims. We are the... We are controlled by circumstances, as it were. We are not sovereign. We are not in control. But God is. So when God is angered about something, when God is sick about something, he takes it on. He says, I'm tired of this sin. This should not be. He's grieved at it. He is disgusted at sin. Sin is disgusting to God. The next time you are considering telling a white lie, the next time that you are considering watching something on the television you shouldn't, the next time you are considering lying to your parents or disobeying them, what you need to remember in your mind is this. Have you ever gone on vacation and left milk in the fridge? And you're not sure how old it is? And you pull it out? Or maybe you're like our household and you have leftovers in every sort of size of Tupperware container. And the fridges now are so big, we are so blessed with this, that occasionally you go into the back of the fridge and you pull it out and you say, how old is this meatloaf? How do you tell how old the meatloaf is? You take the top off, don't you? Can you see how old the meatloaf is? Not always. If you can, you're in real trouble. (laughs) But you, what you do with the meatloaf is you take the meatloaf and you go like this. And if you're not wise, you take a real big breath. You don't take a little. And what follows that? You try, you want to throw up. It's so disgusting and miserable. You can't wait to get rid of it fast enough, right? You throw it in the garbage, you take the garbage, you tie up the garbage, you put it outside in the can. That's how you should treat sin. Don't cuddle it like it's a teddy bear or a cute baby. Treat it like disgusting, rotten milk and meatloaf. That's how God views sin. He doesn't want it in his sight. And if we view sin that way, we will understand how in need of a Savior we are because we can't come into God's presence stinking like rotten meatloaf. We can't. You don't eat rotten meatloaf by putting a little ketchup on it. You don't make a rotting corpse look good by putting a new tie on it. You see, that's where we need verse 8. Because you see, sin is rampant. No one can control it. It is overwhelming the world. It is overwhelming the godly line. God has looked and said, I need to blot this out completely. Wipe it out. It is so completely to be destroyed. The other place where this language of blotting out is used to keep with our kitchen stories is where God says he will clean out, blot out Jerusalem like a woman cleans a dish. When she washes it and turns it upside down and makes sure there's nothing left on it. But there's hope. There's hope in verse 8. You see, God is a just God. But he's also a patient God. He says, I will blot out... 
the face of the earth. In verse 3, he says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. I will not remain with him forever. But his days shall be 120 years. Now that doesn't mean they'll live 120 years and then die. Because you can go to Genesis 11 later and see people living 500 years. What it means is, in 120 years, for the first time ever, water is going to come out of the sky. That's what it means. In 120 years, the flood will come. But, for 120 years, I have my servants. I have Enoch, my preacher. I have Noah, my preacher of righteousness. I have my people who will tell you of the judgment to come. For 120 years, I will bear with you. I will be patient with you. How many of you would bear with rebellion in your children for 120 years? God is so graciously patient. But eventually his patience will end. The thing about 120 years is it's not 121. The day circled on the calendar. It's coming. And judgment day is coming when Jesus will come with legions of angels and he will judge the living and the dead. And that day is circled on the calendar. Just because we don't know which day it is does not mean it's not real. But when it comes, there is hope that we will not be blotted out because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You see, there's no escape from sin except for by grace. Do you notice how this verse just pops in here? It doesn't tell us how great a guy Noah was. It doesn't tell us how well he took care of Mrs. Noah. It doesn't tell us how well he taught his kids. It doesn't tell us how much he talked to God. It doesn't tell us how much he prayed. All it says is Noah found grace. That's intentional. You notice that this is here too before we know anything about Noah. God is introducing us to Noah by saying, Noah is who he is because I have made him that way. Because of my grace. It's the same way that God showed grace to Moses in Exodus 33. It's the same way that God showed grace to Mary in Luke 1. God is in the business of showing people grace. It is a miracle that not everyone dies in the flood. It is a miracle that not everyone will be judged. And the only way we can escape judgment is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and finding grace from God. Did you think about that this morning as you made decisions? Did you think that there's no worth in you that but for God, forever you would burn eternally in hell. Forever. Century upon century. Thousands upon thousands of years. And then be no closer to the end than at the beginning of the word ever. This is not something to take lightly. Only Jesus Christ protects us from the flood of damnation, of fire and hell and judgment for our sin. But Jesus always protects us. He never saves anyone halfway. He never provides opportunities. He grabs people like Noah up out of the flood and lifts them up and takes them out of sin 
that makes them his child. God is in this business. In Zechariah 12, he describes it this way. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Is that how you want your life to be known? Lived in a place where grace and mercy is poured out on you. If you want to learn the lesson of this mysterious passage, do not wonder which of the many theories of who the sons of God are. You must look at sin and the consequence of sin and judgment for sin and the only hope for sin being the grace of God found in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why God tells us this story. It's so that we might flee from sin and flee to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given to us this story of your grace to Noah, your judgment upon sin, that we might have hope. We might have hope that we will not always live in a world beset by sin. But we also have hope, Lord, that we will not be blotted out along with it if only we trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, if there is anyone here within the sound of my voice that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he has done, that they might be saved the pains of hell, I pray this moment, O Lord, that you would make that real to them. If there is any here, Lord, who is doubting their salvation in Jesus Christ, I pray that you would make it real to them. Lord, I pray that you would make it so real that your people would go out with great fervor, that they would not be able to be restrained from speaking to their neighbors, their workers, their friends, their family, their children of the great grace that you provide in Christ. Thank you, Lord. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.